Today's reading is John 1, 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees, who had been sent to question him, uh, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I, my, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The word of the Lord. Well, friends, uh, it is indeed good to, to be together again on this day after Christmas. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure how, how Christmas has hit you this year uh, from folks that I've had a chance to talk to. It's been quite the mix of feelings and emotions, I think. I, I mean, some have expressed gratitude at, at traditions that maybe they missed last year, but that are kind of slowly being brought back into the fold this year. Um, others have expressed fatigue and, and sadness at that we're still kind of in this place where we can't necessarily gather maybe the way we'd like to or the way we used to. Um, others yet have expressed anxiety at, at baggage and history, often family-related, that the holiday season can bring up. And many others have simply just used the word weird to describe uh, this Christmas season. And, and truthfully, I, I'd probably say I've experienced a mix of all of those things this Christmas. But I just want to say that no matter what your experience of Christmas and the holiday season has been this year, I, I pray that the truth of the God in the manger, the, the God who humbled himself, to be born as one of us, to be born into poverty, the God who had the angels proclaim his coming to the lowest on the social ladder, the, the God who identified with an oppressed people living under the world's most powerful empire. I, I pray that all the other trappings of this season would get stripped away and that the, the beautiful simplicity and power of that God who comes to us in that way would bring you some measure of comfort and peace this Christmas season. Uh, now, one other quick item of business before I go any further. If you forgot your church cliche bingo card the last time I preached, you're getting a second chance today. Uh, and that's all I'm going to say about that. But if you know, you know. So, uh, now, if you were with us last Sunday, you'll know that we began our journey through the Gospel of John. Last week, 
Dave preached on the very beginning of, God, of John's gospel, which you might remember goes all the way back to the very beginning of time itself. In fact, even further back than that. John writes, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, Jesus. And John tells us that not only was the Word Jesus with God in the beginning, the Word was God. The Word, through this Word, all things were made. And, and there's so much packed into what John has to say about the incarnation in this first portion of his gospel that I encourage you, go back and give Dave's sermon a listen if you missed it last week. Uh, but there's one other part of, of last week's scripture reading, a minor portion that wasn't as pertinent uh, to the focus of Dave's sermon, but that's directly connected to today's reading. And I want to highlight that right now. It's, it's found in verses 6 through 8. And there John, the author of the gospel, tells us about a different John, John the Baptist, who, who as you heard, is the focus of today's passage. And in verses 6 through 8 of John chapter 1, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, and that light being Jesus, who John had just told us was the light shining in the darkness, so that through him all might believe. John was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And then seven verses later in verse 15, John writes that John, again speaking of John the Baptist, testified concerning Jesus. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Uh, now we know a lot about John the Baptist from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other three gospels. Uh, and their accounts of John the Baptist depict him, depict him as this fiery prophet who lives in the desert, who uh, wears clothes made of camel's hair, who eats grasshoppers and honey, who preaches a message of repentance, and who baptizes all who take his message to heart. But John's gospel gives a little different vibe than that. In fact, if we only had John's gospel to go off of, we'd have nothing to create this mental picture of an eccentric, fiery prophet preaching a baptism of repentance. And, and while John's gospel does reference that John baptized people, that's, that's really not the primary focus here. In fact, were we to only have John's gospel, we might instead have called John the Baptist something like John the Witness or John the Testifier because that's the focus of John's work in this particular introduction to him that we find in John chapter 1. And I believe that John the Baptist's role as one who testifies to Jesus offers guidance for our discipleship journey as well. I mean, after all, what is our calling as Christians if it's not to point people to Jesus? Like John, the whole of our lives is to bear witness to Jesus and his good and faithful presence in our lives and in our world. And so the time that we have remaining this morning, let's look at John's example and let's see what we can learn from it. And we'll begin by just observing how John the Baptist had this crystal clear sense of who he is and really who he's not. I mean, note that John's immediate response to his interrogation by the Jewish leaders when they asked him about his identity to make sure there was no confusion, the very first thing John says is, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. And here's the thing. John hadn't been asked explicitly at that point if he was the Messiah, but he just wanted to eliminate any room for misunderstanding. He knew his role. He wasn't trying to be someone he wasn't, and he wasn't trying to create a name for himself. In fact, John the Baptist is so concerned about not cultivating this following of his own 
that not only does he clearly refute being the Messiah, he also refuses to be identified as Elijah or as the prophet, which those were two personalities that were awaited by Israel who would prepare the nation for this great period of renewal. And and when John refuses those designations, it's, it's interesting because in Matthew's gospel, Jesus actually refers to John as Elijah. And in Luke's gospel, John's own father identifies him as the prophet. And we don't have time to unpack here what Jesus or Zechariah meant by that and, and how both those can be true and John's refuting of them can be true. And I'm not trying to set up a debate between them where there's not one. Rather, I'm just highlighting this because, again, I think John's reasons for, being, for rejecting the Elijah or the prophet titles has more than anything to do with him not wanting to draw extra attention to himself because, again, his chief aim was to draw attention to Christ. And that can be easier said than done, right? I mean, while many of us maybe have no desire to be famous, who doesn't want a little extra attention every now and then? And while I'm guessing that most of us here this morning aren't scheming to build a name for ourselves by leveraging our association with Jesus, many throughout history have done so and continue to do so. I mean, most recently, Christianity Today's podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, put a spotlight on, among other things, the danger and damage that comes with using Jesus to build a name for oneself. And even if you're not familiar with that podcast or with Mark Driscoll or Mars Hill, I'm sure there are other examples that quickly come to mind for you of people who seem to be more concerned about building their own brand than they are about pointing people away from themselves and to Christ. And and while there are some who do have ulterior motives when it comes to their proclamation of Jesus, I don't believe that to to be the case for the majority of of those who gain some sort of following based on their connection to Jesus. I don't. But I do think it's an ever-present danger that we must be aware of in the church, just as John was. For instance, in a previous ministry context that I served in, the church experienced a period of massive, rapid growth. And, And while that growth was certainly exciting in a lot of ways, Over time, I started growing a bit concerned by something of a trend that I started to observe. I began noticing that when I heard most people who were new to the church during that season uh, talk about their faith, they talked more about how excited they were about this particular church and and far less about how excited they were about Jesus. They'd they'd highlight how they loved, you know, how relatable the preaching was or or the concert caliber music or something like that. And, And and there's nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But, but what I didn't hear much was excitement about Jesus and, and how amazing he was. More excitement was generated by the messenger than the message, so to speak. And, and over time, that began to trouble me so much in my spirit that I spent several months with the staff that I led doing little to no strategic planning and instead turned all of our focus to talking about Jesus, reading and studying Jesus, reflecting on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, discussing how, how do we do all that we can do in this church context to make sure that we're pointing people to Jesus, asking how have we experienced Jesus' goodness in our own lives in such a way that no matter what church setting we find ourselves in, we want to do all that we can to share with excitement the life that we found in him. And you might think that that's the kind of stuff churches always talk about internally, or maybe that sounds like basic 101 level stuff, but believe me when I say that this kind of drift away from being centered on Jesus and the values of his kingdom can be so easy that it happens without us even noticing it. 
And again, I want to be careful here to say that it's not wrong to be excited about one's church. Nor is it wrong to seek to have excellence in your church's teaching or music or whatever. At the same time, the alarm bells should start going off if we're getting people more excited about our church and what we're doing than we are getting them excited about Jesus and their experience of what Jesus is doing in their life. And, and it might seem like splitting hairs, but I don't think it is. I get the impression that John specifically did not want people excited about him. John was not looking for bigger crowds. He wasn't trying to receive credit for the work he was doing. In fact, I don't think he cared one bit about his reputation other than whether or not he was faithfully living into the vocation God had given him of pointing people to Jesus. So at every turn, we see John rejecting anything that puts the spotlight on himself and instead does everything possible to put the spotlight solely on Jesus. And like John, we need to remember that that is our calling as well. And so by rejecting identification as the Messiah, as Elijah, as the prophet, John finally gives then a clear answer to who he is. He answers that question by declaring, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. But notice here that even in John's explanation of his identity is far less about who he is and far more about what he has come to do and who he has come for. And that's related to another important discipleship insight I think we get from John. John's identity was anchored in his understanding of his role in God's work in our world. John's self-identification is this voice crying out in the wilderness, which is an allusion to Isaiah 40, but it's also uh, uh, an echo of the way John, Mark's gospel introduces John. Uh, this understanding that John has of himself is all about the work that he believes God has called him to do. His vocation as one who baptizes is more than anything as a witness, as one who testifies on behalf of another. And I wonder, do we each have a sense, a clear sense like that of our own work that God has for us in this world? Do, do you know how God wants to use you to point people to Jesus? And I get that it can be easy to look at, at someone like Dave or, or me and be like, well, you guys have that figured out. But let me assure you, you don't need to enter vocational ministry to have your identity anchored in pointing people to Jesus. In fact, the beauty of how God's Spirit works in our world is that we're each called to point people to Christ and the goodness of God in our own unique ways, using our own unique gifts and in our own unique spheres of influence. You don't need a seminary degree or a pulpit to do that. A world full of pastors is not the answer. In fact, I shudder to picture that reality. But instead, I firmly believe that God has equipped you to do that work in ways that I could never do it, in ways that Dave could never do it. Again, each of us has our own gifts and passions, and story, and, and all of that can be used by God to draw people to himself. And so I just encourage you, if you don't feel like you have clarity here, in the days to come, just ask yourself, how can I point people to Christ through my own life? What can I learn from John's example? I also think it's, it's worth pointing out how, how John's understanding of his vocation cultivated in him both confidence and humility. Uh, and let's tackle that in reverse order. First, as John tells the religious leaders about his work to make Jesus known, he says that Jesus is, quote, the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
And let me give a little background on what John is saying here. People with any sort of standing or reputation in those days often wouldn't stoop to untie their own sandals when they entered into a place. Instead, that would be the work of a servant. And yet here, John is saying that even a servant's work would be too lofty for him in comparison with Jesus' greatness. That in comparison to Jesus, John, the the mere work of untying Jesus' sandals would still be giving him too much esteem. And yet, it's also important to note that this humility doesn't make John a doormat in life. In fact, I'd argue that all four Gospels portray John as maybe one of the most self-assured individuals we meet in Scripture. He has a very strong understanding of who he is and a confidence in his ability to do the work that God has called him to do. Those two things, confidence and humility, they're not mutually exclusive. The greater we understand who we are in light of Christ, the more simultaneously confident and humble we become. And so it's worth asking ourselves, am I seeing ways that my faith is cultivating both confidence and humility in me? That combination can be a marker of a growing understanding, again, of who we are in light of who God is. And finally, I I think John's example can be instructive for our own discipleship in the way that John was able to recognize God's presence and revelation when he saw it. I mean, what's interesting about the account of John the Baptist that's given to us in John chapter 1 is that John didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah from birth. Rather, John tells us it had been revealed to him that the one whom he saw the Spirit come down and remain on, that would be the Messiah. And who is that revealed to John by? Well, the Sunday school answer fits here, by God. You see, John had cultivated a connection with God such that he was able to hear the still, small voice of God reveal to him what to be looking for as he prepared others for the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. And, and while this is just my opinion and it's not made explicit by the text, I, I don't think receiving revelations from God was out of the ordinary for John. I, I mean, the specific revelation that Jesus was the Messiah was certainly unique, but I don't think hearing from God was a unique experience for John. I believe John had cultivated a connection with God such that when the time came, John knew God would make it clear who the Messiah was. And what's my basis for thinking that? Well, Beyond what John writes in his gospel, we can gather from what we learn in the other gospels that that John the Baptist has cultivated, I don't know how you say it, a unique lifestyle in the wilderness. And, And a running theme throughout scripture is that the wilderness is a place where people encounter God, where they hear from God, and where they receive from God both the guidance and the sustenance they need. And so surely John spent his time in the desert, in the wilderness, cultivating a rich life with God, such that his spirit was increasingly in tune with God's spirit. And so I believe it was relatively easy for John to recognize God's presence and unique revelation when it finally arrived in the person of Jesus. So again, what what about us? How, How are we working to cultivate a similar connection with our Heavenly Father? What is our wilderness, our desert? What places and practices can we give ourselves to that will cultivate a similar connection with God's Spirit such that we can recognize God's presence and God's work among us just like John did? 
And well, God's presence obviously is always with us. How can we consciously make ourselves aware of God's presence frequently enough that it's easy for us to identify where God's at work in our lives and in the lives of others? And then circling back to what we've been talking about all morning, when we recognize God's work in our midst, how can we use our lives to point others to that work of God? Because even John's baptizing work, as, as we've talked about, as presented in John's gospel, is not primarily about cleansing people from sin, but rather about witnessing to God's presence in the world. I mean, here, John the Baptist explicitly says that the reason I came baptizing is so that Jesus might be revealed to Israel. So again, to drive our main point this morning further into the ground, John's gospel is making it overwhelmingly clear that every bit of John's work is to point people to Christ. Everything John said, everything John did hinged on that goal, even and especially his baptizing work. And so sisters and brothers, we wrap up this morning. It should be abundantly clear by now that the gospel of John, and, and today's reading especially, presents John the Baptist as having a clear sense of who he is and who he's not, of his role in manifesting God's work in our world, of recognizing God's presence and God's revelation when he sees it, and of understanding his life's work as a testimony to that revelation. The John the Baptist that we find in John's gospel shows us how what we do reveals to others what we believe. And so again, have we reflected on our own individual identities enough to have a sense of the talents we have, the talents we don't, to carry on the work of God in our context? Are we aware of the sort of God we reveal to the world through our words and our actions? Do our words and actions witness to a God who removes everything that alienates people from God and from each other? Do they reveal a God who does so not by militant violence, but by self-sacrificial love? Does the way we live reveal a God who remains actively present in our world? Or do our words and actions witness to a different sort of God altogether? Brothers and sisters, as we continue in this Christmas season, may we find our life and meaning anchored in the light of the world. Jesus, the Christ, the one who came to overcome the darkness, to dwell among us as one of us, to make the overwhelming grace and love of God known to us. And may we, like John, find our purpose in giving everything that we have and everything that we are to pointing our world to the light of life found in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the way that you came into this world as light in the darkness. And we thank you, God, for the ways that you have revealed that light to us and the ways that you have now invited us as your people to follow John's example of, of pointing people to that light, of, of using our lives, our words, our actions to point people to who you are, the life and the light that's found only in you. And so as we continue in this Christmas season, again, may we find ourselves anchored in the life of your light, but may we also ask how we use our identities to point people to that same light. Jesus, we pray all of this in your name and in the power of your spirit. Amen.